Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 22 of Her Story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode today. My guest is Dr. Alice Hamill, and Dr. Hamill is a diverse and widely known music educator. She currently teaches at James Madison and Virginia Commonwealth Universities as a teacher educator, and she also has a very large flute studio and is the music intervention specialist for ASSET, which is autism support education and training. So in this episode, Alice and I discuss inclusion in music education. We discuss the importance of social emotional learning for students. And we also talk a little bit about her career and her areas of research. So I'm really excited for all those teachers that are either getting back to school or haven't quite started yet and are feeling a little nervous about how they're going to include all of their students. I think she provides some awesome insight into building relationships with kids. So I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode. Please let us know what you think and please make sure you're sharing it with all of your friends and following our social media. I really appreciate it. Enjoy. Thanks. My name is Alice Hamill and I am a music educator. I have a very special interest in students who are at risk and in need and have spent most of my career teaching students who are like that. I am originally from a very small uh, town in Florida named Sebring. Awesome. So Alice, I'm so excited that you're here and you're talking to us today about your experiences and your students and that sort of thing. We're just going to start by asking a little bit about your life. So can you start by talking a little bit about what got you into music is in the first place when you were a student? Okay. According to my mother, I would stop people in the grocery grocery store and sing and dance for them when I was about three. So (laughs) I'm thinking, yeah, it was just, it was me. I remember always loving music. The only thing I remember from kindergarten is singing the hungry, hungry, I am hungry, table, table, here I come. It's like an old Dr. Seuss thing. So most of my early memories in school or whatever are all musical, either music or drama or something. I started playing the flute in fifth grade and started band in sixth grade, and I just loved it. I loved my band director. I loved being in the band room. I loved everything about all of it. Uh, (laughs) And still I loved, I did singing in church and things. In high school, I did band and choir and drama and everything that I could. You were that kid. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I decided in seventh grade, I was going to be a band director. We were playing one of these treasury of scales exercises, which to my poor little uninformed ears sounded so beautiful. And I decided partway through it, I'm like, yes, I want to stay here forever. This is what I want to be. So from then on, I announced to everybody that I was going to be a band director. And that was my career path. And I didn't change it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so great. I love that. And you're like, yep, I'm, I'm that kid. I was involved in everything. That's great. Yeah. I feel like a lot of us are. Can you talk a little bit about your collegiate experiences in music ed? Sure. Uh-huh. My 
first degree is from Shenandoah Conservatory in Winchester, Virginia. And I did my music, did music education degree there and I double majored in voice and flute. And it was really, really fun. <laughs> I loved college. I had never um, really heard an orchestra much less played in an orchestra. So there were so many amazing opportunities and ways to music and to talk to all kinds of other people from different parts of the country who had had different experiences was really exciting for me because, you know, in the small town I'm from, I was kind of limited to just what they had and I didn't realize there was so much more in music to have. My next question was about your experiences as a K-12 educator because you have basically taught in every single content area. You've done instrumental, choral, and general music. So what were those experiences like teaching all of those subjects? Oh, yes. Well, I clearly, when I was undergrad, was focused on being a band director. Uh, at the same time, I was really interested in anything that was different. And that kind of comes from my parents. My parents were physicians and they weren't really big on putting me into daycare or having babysitters when I was little. So I would just go with them. So I would go to the hospital with them. I would go on rounds with my parents. I would go to medical conferences with them. I would, you know, read medical books. I worked in their office when they had a private practice, starting with like changing the the paper on the tables and emptying the trash cans. And then I worked all the way up to doing all of billing by the time I was in high school. I just it was so interesting to me to see all these kids come into their office that didn't go to school with me. So I asked lots of questions about them and I was really interested in all the different. And then when I was in college, I would kind of descri describe to people that other interest I had and they kept saying, oh, well, you should do music therapy. That's, that's what you should do, music therapy. And I said, no, because what I really want to do is teach musical skills to students who have difficulty learning. That's, that's what I want to do. So yeah. when I started teaching, I started teaching in Tallahassee, Florida, because I went right to my master's degree when I finished at Shenandoah. Mm -hmm. And I taught in a school where I did elementary general music, middle school general music, middle school chorus, and middle school band. So that was, that was the job. And did everything, yeah. <laughs> I did that. And I, and I loved it. I did all of it. And, and I loved it. I had a pretty steep learning curve because it wasn't all just band or wasn't, you know, just choir. There's a lot of general music there. So I had, you know, some learning to do there, which I thought was really super exciting. And to be able to do that at the same time I was getting my master's degree, I think was really, it was beneficial to me because I was young. <laughs> so it helped yeah. a lot get some actual teaching experience while I was getting my master's degree. So then when I left Tallahassee, I taught in Hampton, Virginia for a couple of years, choir, and then moved to Richmond, Virginia, did some more choir, and then moved into more private teaching. I really got excited about especially teaching kids with differences and disabilities in private settings or in nonprofit settings, private schools, just teaching kids who wouldn't be able to really access the curriculum in a public school without an awful lot of services. So you mentioned a couple of things that I, I wanted to touch upon. So the first thing is you're talking about getting your master's at the same time that you were teaching. And I happen to be doing the same thing right now. <laughs> so I can relate to that. I'm teaching middle school and high school bands. So I, I have kids seven through 12. 
right now and I'm going getting my master's degree full time during the year. So that's awesome. Yeah. People often ask me like, how are you doing this? You're crazy. I'm like, yes, but you know, I'm not the only one who does it. So it's refreshing to know that (laughs) I'm not like a crazy person. Also, I think it's very interesting that you started off wholeheartedly set on being a band director and that's what you wanted to do. And you slowly kind of phased yourself. I wouldn't say away from that, but you were also exploring other areas like teaching choir for a while and then doing things privately and that sort of thing. And I think it's important to know and to discuss that because I feel like a lot of college students or high school students, when they decide that they want to go into this, they are dead set on you know, being this one position and pursuing that. And then it kind of ends up doesn't play out that way. Like I was very fortunate because when I was young, I wanted to be a high school band director. And then when I went into college, I was like, you know what? I'm pretty comfortable doing any of this. And then I ended up, you know, getting that job that I originally wanted, but it's not the case for everybody. Right. I mean, I think you, you take the job that's there. Yeah. When I got to Tallahassee, that was the job that was open. And I said, yes, please. Thank you. And then, as I, you know, as I got in more to middle school, which is my absolute favorite age, I literally am 12. <laughs> so I get along really well with middle schoolers. Is that a lot of kids who are at risk, who are in need, who have disabilities, were in choral programs. They were in yeah. more than band. So I think I just kind of moved there because I I saw the need and those kids interested me a lot and I really wanted to get to know them and to teach them. Yeah and one of the reasons why I asked you to come on is I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about special ed and its involvement in collegiate programs when it comes to teacher preparation Mm -hmm. because I feel like a lot of schools don't really focus enough on teaching those kids and I feel like a lot of music teachers end up not being super prepared to teach special education when they go out into the quote-unquote real world Um, and so I feel like that's like kind of a big issue in teacher preparation programs is there's that lack of training in special education. Yeah it's huge. Many universities provide almost nothing because of the 120 credit hour goal slash mandate that you know we have to educate music educators in 120 credits which is almost impossible when you're preparing music educators and then a lot of times the students will only get a course in the college of education yeah um, that's what where, my school did yep yeah and where the, the the professor doesn't really relate things to music education mm-hmm. and it's hard to make transfers especially when you're a student and you don't have that practical experience you haven't been in the classroom it's really hard to take a gen ed suggestion skill technique modification you know whatever and say oh yeah yeah that's what it would look like in band and so students don't have that and so they end up just kind of compartmentalizing that course in another part of their brain where if they remember anything it's just some general label stuff about various diagnoses yeah 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 some schools are really fortunate or they've had somebody advocate for a special course taught by a music specialist focusing on students with disabilities Mm -hmm. which i think everybody should have and everybody needs in addition to field work think the ability to actually see children in action with disabilities Musicking in a classroom is important. 
Yeah, and I don't want to obviously complain about the program that I came from because I feel like Baldwin-Wallace prepared me really well to be a teacher, but that was one of the holes. Like, I had to take a special ed course through the gen ed program, and I felt like it was really hard to apply that to how hands-on music is because a lot of it was catered towards more of, I don't really want to say academia because music's an academic subject, but more kind of like teaching kids how to read and write and do math facts and that sort of thing. And I'm sitting here like, this has nothing to do with music right now. And I feel like the, the only reason why I feel comfortable teaching special ed is because I was thrown into a summer job working for a BOCES program where I had to write an entire music curriculum and teach special ed kids ages five through 21. And I was just thrown into it. And that was like a summer job that I had. And that's the only reason why I feel like I'm prepared to do that now because I had that real world experience because otherwise I didn't get that in my teacher preparation program. Yeah. And a lot of people don't. And then there they are. And sometimes, yeah, it's their very first job. And here on your schedule is adapted music or self-contained mm-hmm. music or, or whatever. And it, Yes. And, and can you imagine, Cassidy, like this year and, oh, and also it's virtual. So here you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I had, I just finished my first year of teaching. Hallelujah. And I'm about to start my second year of teaching and a hot mess, but it's fine. And I had to teach an eighth grade general music class and I teach in a very diverse borderline urban school district, very large school district. And I was thrown into an eighth grade general music class. So it's, you know, that age group where general music isn't exactly fun for them anymore. And it's that, you know, 13, 14 age group where nothing is fun for them right now. (laughs) No, no, nothing. And I had kids of all sorts of ability levels in that class. And so I think that was even the more challenging part for me is that I had very high functioning students in the class and then I had very low functioning students in the class. And just being able to adapt everything that I was putting out to those kids to every kid was very challenging. And I, I was not prepared to do that that first week at all. I had to fly by the seat of my pants and figure it out. Yeah. Well, honestly, though, teachers who've taught for 30 years are still flying by the seat of their pants the first week. Mm-hmm. I think <laughs> the, mo- the most important thing is to know your kids. And it's hard to do, especially if you don't get IEPs or five fours ahead of time. Or if you're in a transient district, you know, kids just coming in and coming out and you've never met them. You don't really know them. Yeah, it's a hot mess. And, and it's a hot mess for almost everybody in the beginning. And I think that's what a lot of beginning teachers, they think, oh God, it's only me and I'm a failure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, nah, everybody's a failure. <laughs> everybody's a failure. Yeah, we fall on our butt a few times before we figure things out. Definitely. Exactly. And I think if more teachers just kind of like told the truth and said, no, it's a hot mess in my class too. It's okay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> The most, the, the most wonderful thing about teaching is that you get to get up and go back the next day and make different mistakes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, we're all going to mess up every day. We just try to you know, mess up just a little bit differently than we did the day before. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. You mentioned when you were talking about um, your experiences at the beginning, you, you mentioned that you've taught numerous at-risk and in-need students. Some people may not know what that means. So can you talk a little bit about what your student population was like and some of the things that you had to do as a teacher for these kids? Sure. I purposefully 
sought out schools that were maybe like Title I schools or that had a high population of transient students or students who were homeless, uh, students who were insecure in their food needs, they didn't know if they were gonna have enough to eat. Just finding schools like that where I felt the students really needed to have a good music teacher, needed to have an yeah. experience like that. A lot of times it goes the other way, you know, teachers, beginning teachers are in situations like that and then they move. I love when people call it moving up. I'm like, no. Anyway, moving up and out to the suburbs or whatever. Um, yeah. I'm just the opposite. I kept going in. <laughs> you know? And um, because not every kid who's at risk and in need has an IEP or a 504 plan. Mm-hmm. But they often have very special learning needs and very special just kind of living needs. And having a teacher who recognizes what it took for them to get into my music room that day is important all of the barriers that they overcame to get to my classroom and how that's so much more than for some kids who have, you know, two grownups at home, you know, a nice hot breakfast in the morning, somebody drives them to school, you know, th- those kinds of things. So very, very interested in those students as well as students who have the paperwork that says they have disabilities. So- yeah, I have a lot of students like that as well. And I, I agree with you in the having an issue with people saying the leveling up and that sort of thing, like, oh, I have to do my duty for the first few years of teaching and then I get to leave and then I get to start my real career. And I hate when people have that attitude. It bothers me so much. <laughs> it's just, it does. It's so toxic. Yeah, I think it comes from, you know, we see all those pictures and the videos and here's all these bands that play at Midwest and, mm-hmm. you know, all these choirs and they look so beautiful on the stage and all those things that we maybe experienced or aspired to experience. And we want to recreate those kinds of situations. And when we look at those pictures in the videos, we don't take the time to think about who's not there. Yeah. And, yeah. And, the, and, and all the isms that are involved in the people who aren't there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's racism in there, there's classism, there's ableism, there's so many isms involved in our thinking. And it's so, it's just, it's, it's implicit. It's, it's something, you know, that's within the privilege of a lot of music teachers and they can't recognize it without really taking the time to think about it. Yeah. And I think so many of us came from those programs that were, you know, the more elite music programs in the high school and everybody looked the same and that sort of thing. And so I, I implore people that are feeling frustrated that their ensembles aren't there to look at the people that continuously keep performing at these things because you'll see a common denominator there. Yeah. And I personally, I get more fulfillment from teaching my kids in a Title I district because when they accomplish something, they are so much more appreciative of even just the little things. They are so much more accepting of other people that are different from them. And they're so much more willing to operate as a team and as an actual ensemble. I get just, I just get so much more fulfillment going in there and teaching those kids every single day. And I feel like if we looked at teaching from that lens instead of, oh, are we winning this competition? Are we performing here? Are we performing there? Then I feel like people would be a lot more happy with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's funny, some people that say, oh, well, we performed at, you know, Carnegie Hall or Lincoln Center. I'm like, oh, how much did that cost you? Mm-hmm. 
you know, because <laughs> it's, it's a lot of it is really, it's about the money. It's, that's, that's what it is. It's, can you pay for it? It's not, are you actually really, really good? It's, can you pay for it? Right. That's and, what it is. And the students we're talking about cannot pay for it. And there are not boosters or fundraisers that are going to get them there. So no, they won't be playing in those venues and it doesn't mean they don't deserve to. Yeah, I completely agree. So another question for you that I have is what made you want to become a teacher educator? People started like coming to my room to ask my advice about things, which was, which was really cool. Mm -hmm. And then I got asked to like talk to my department and then to talk. And so I think the leaders that I had in my school system kind of started preparing me for that by asking me to do small things. And then I guess because I had to be convinced in my own way that anybody would care what I had to say. And so by starting with those small things, I was like, oh, I, I say something and people say that that's a good idea. That's amazing. And I think a lot of us haven't had those experiences in the past of somebody really appreciating our ideas and telling us, oh, that's great. That's, you know, you talk smart or whatever, you know. So, <laughs> so I just kept talking smarter. And next thing I knew, I was presenting at my first state conference. And I thought, oh, well, this is, this is really fun. And I realized that I could affect the lives of so many more kids if I taught their teachers. Yeah. And then kind of like that ripple effect at the same time, I don't ever want to become that person who hasn't taught a real kid in however many months or years. So I'm, I always keep my hands on actual teaching so that I'm still making those different mistakes every day, which helps when I talk to teachers because then what I'm saying is still relevant and real. I think but, one of the biggest issues with some teacher preparation programs is the faculty that are in charge of these programs haven't taught in the classroom in 30 plus years. And right. so some of the things that they're saying may not be directly applicable to what's going on in the world today of education. Yeah. Well, and also I wanted to say one thing about the people that helped me, because I've never been asked that question, Cassidy, the people that helped <laughs> me become a teacher educator, that, that's a new one, is that we need to do that for other people. Yeah. We need to, to take the next person and say, hey, Here's, here's how you do this. You go now. I don't want to, I'm not going to present at this conference. You do it for me or you go do this and mm -hmm. to help so that behind us, there's a whole bunch of other women who are ready to go who yes. are, and who have had that kind of affirmation that what you say matters to people and that you have a voice that needs to be heard in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And that was my, my follow-up question to my original question was, how do you, as a teacher educator and music ed professor at both of your universities, because you teach at James Madison and Virginia Commonwealth, as a teacher educator, how do you support the students in your program that are underrepresented in the professional field? Yes. I, I will first place I make them all be my Facebook friends. <laughs> I, don't, I don't make them, but I highly encourage them. So then even when they're not my students anymore, every little thing that they do in their lives, I'm there to tell them that's awesome. I'm so proud of you. Great job. So that I can kind of stay with them. And then as I see opportunities, for example, I'm the president elect for the Virginia music educators association. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm already getting former students you know, and people in whom I see leadership skills and 
you know, putting them up for positions and putting them on committees. And then there's a whole new generation of teachers and teacher educators who are also focused on different and, and disabilities and people who have greater mm-hmm. needs than the majority population. And I think, yeah, just saying, hey, you know, you know, here's a workshop opportunity coming up. How about you do it? Because, you know, I'm busy or I've done a lot or, you know, just to mm-hmm. not hog everything for yourself. <laughs> Share. Yeah. Be selfless. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then I know too that, you know, one day I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. And I want to make sure that there's a whole bunch of women who are like, yeah, I can do this. And everybody knows who they are and that, you know, this can continue. That's amazing. And I think that's so great. And I feel like more people should be doing that because instinctually as teachers, we do that for our students in K-12 education. But I feel like it's so important that people at the university level are also doing that for future teachers as well. Yes, absolutely. And so as a professional, obviously you've done a considerable amount of research on all of the topics we talked about. So can you talk a little bit about your research areas and some of the things that you have, you know, delved into in your writing? Sure. The first thing that really fascinated me was that exact idea of taking a class in a college of ed or in music ed. So I, I studied that. I took a dissertation that had been written about uh, general elementary classroom teachers mm-hmm. and replicated it with music educators to see, did music educators need the same competencies that general elementary teachers needed? And what I found is some are the same, but there are some different competencies that music teachers need that need to be taught in a musical setting in order for them to make the transfers necessary to be effective at it when they start teaching. So I did that for a while um, and then kind of went into, so, okay, so once we're in there, what do we need to teach and how, how should we do that? So I designed a heuristic for adaptations that includes, I think about size, color, pacing, and modality. And so I did some research on the effect of changing size of materials, adding color to materials, or sometimes taking color away from materials, how we pace our materials, our expectations, how to do that in the moment in the classroom, and then modalities, uh, visual, aural, and kinesthetic modalities. And I use and teach that now as really a way I find to be very effective with adaptations is the size color pacing modality so yeah so did that and then lately i have been really interested in poverty and the effect of poverty on everything including uh, a student's ability to even access a music classroom after fifth grade you know in middle school the ability to be in an elective that requires after school activities or before school activities or money for an instrument or a book or all the things that a lot of us just really assume is fine in secondary music. Uh, so I've done, done some research in that area to just kind of find out what we as teachers can do to remove as many barriers to accessibility as possible um, for students who do not have the financial means to be in the ensembles that we're teaching. I find your research really interesting because I feel like there is this kind of gap in music education right now where a lot of people aren't tackling some of the issues you've tackled. And that's why I find 
a lot of what you're saying and a lot of your research is not just, okay, here are the issues. You also are providing solutions and things that people can actively take to the classroom with them, which I think is great. Well, and I think that's important. There's, there's a disconnect sometimes between research and practice. And, yeah. you know, even, you know, some people, I mean, we will slog through those research documents hoping to find something useful and practical for our classroom. And then often we don't find anything. So having, having research to practice that can give specific things. Okay, so here's what you need to do tomorrow. And which, you know, some people make fun of. They go, oh, well, all they want is what are they going to do tomorrow? I'm like, well, yeah, because they're going to be in the classroom tomorrow. <laughs> so, yeah, so you can do all the research and that's fantastic. But you have to be able to make it so that K-12 teachers can say, oh, yeah, so now I can do this and this and this and this. Great. Perfect. And then they take that and go, go with it. And that's, that's something I think some people miss. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I found when you came to Baldwin-Walls and did that workshop a few years ago, that's why I found it so enlightening because it was so applicable. And you went through things with us, like how we can adapt classroom music teaching and apply it to any ability and any level. And so my question, my next question for you is, do you have any advice or tips as to how teachers can make their classrooms more inclusive to special ed and in-need students? Yes. I know that's a big question. <laughs> it's a big question. It, it, it made my brain go yummy. <laughs> so, well, the first thing I think is, is the idea of communication with your special education staff, with the teachers and with paraprofessionals or teacher assistants because you, you have to really know your students. So knowing your students before, before they come in, or you know if you've already met them, it's okay. You can know them before next week. It's okay. So kind of knowing who they are and then getting, getting to know the students yourselves. I think especially after this, the COVID and everything and however we're starting school in the fall, and there's a million different ways we're doing it apparently, social emotional learning is gonna be more important than ever. In order to have a really truly inclusive classroom, your students have to know that you really care about them and they have to know that their peers care about them as well. So we have to break down all those barriers in the classroom and form a culture and a community of we are all here together and we're going to music together and it's going to be awesome. And it's going to take a while to get that social emotional learning going and the kids are going to have to tell their stories. There's a whole lot of trauma that's happened. And, and for teachers, too, we've had a whole lot of trauma since the beginning of March. Mm. So I think, you know, in, to develop an inclusive classroom, we can't just walk in with our marches, put them on the stand, pick up the baton and go on the first day of school. Yeah. We really are going to have to spend some time about talking about what happened, talking about what's still happening and kind of working through that as, as a group before we can even start then once we have that and we know that all the kids know that we're here for them and we're here for each other, then it's time to look at what we plan to teach. So here, okay, so here are my actual teaching goals. Here are my objectives. And then now that you know your students to think, okay, who's going to need extra or more or different on any of these objectives? And because you know your students, it'll be a whole lot easier and you won't feel like you're just doing a generic exercise or an assignment for a class, like when you were in college, you know, you'll have, you'll know those kids and what you need to do. So that's where I suggest you start with that size, color, pacing and modality 
work through your lesson plans, see who might need more or less or different. Then the next step for me is to think about the kids who already know all the stuff that you plan to teach. I think one of, one of the marginalized group in our schools is students who are intellectually gifted and students who are twice exceptional. So they are intellectually gifted and they have a disability. So trying to think about what their goals and what their objectives might be, because they may be months or years ahead of whatever you're teaching the rest of the group. And then to think about the kids who may be months or years behind in skill level, what you're gonna teach the rest of the group. So you have your adaptations and then you're gonna go into your modifications, right? So what do I need to do to make this a little more difficult, you know, to slide up the skill level a little bit for Cassidy so that she can say she learned something today in music, right? Cause you don't want any kid, what'd you learn today in music? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Kid to learn something. And then, you know, to think about Alice who is not able to even begin to obtain the objective that you're having for the rest of your class or your ensemble that day. So what is it that she can learn or she can work on that day so that she learns something too? And that's where I think a lot of kids with disabilities get left behind because they miss something or, you know, they're gone for a while or class just moves too quickly. And then next thing you know, that kid's just sitting there. And then sometimes people go, oh, well, she's just here to be with the other kids. You know, she's just here to listen to the music. No. You know, their mamas, their grownups did not send them to school that day just to be with the other kids. They should be learning something too. So in order to design that truly effective and inclusive instruction requires you to sometimes wind things back, wind things forward and adapt. It just... Yeah, it sounds really super complicated, but it's not once you get started. And honestly, if you get to know your kids first, it's so much easier. It's, and if your kid knows that even if you mess up or do something wrong, they know you care about them and you're trying. Yeah. And that, that's really, that's really important. Yeah. And what I loved about your response, and obviously I, I know this about you already and everything that you've done with your career, but some people may not know you super well, but what I loved about your response is that you didn't start by othering these students right away. You talked about getting to know every student mm-hmm. and developing a relationship with every student, having that be the focus first. And then what I also loved is that you reference conducting because a lot of people think that the only way to include special education students in music is just through a general music classroom. Yeah, yeah you're right. And or, or choir because they think that that's a little more adaptable, but we rarely include special ed kids in band and orchestra programs. And so a lot of people, if I ask that question to them and they have like a special ed focus, they'll go right to general music right away. They'll go, oh, I do this, 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 and this, and this with my general music class. And they don't even bother mentioning instrumental music. And I actually interviewed a teacher in rural Connecticut. She teaches a very rural school district and she is the music teacher for K through eight. And she has a lot of special ed kids and she doesn't just include them in her general music classes. She includes them in her beginning band program as well. Yay! <laughs> Which is, was so great. And I was like, yes, Sarah, good for you. Because a lot of people are afraid to do that. Mm-hmm. Because I think they, again, have this elitist attitude, like my band needs to sound perfect. We need to compete. We need to win. We need to do all these things. Instead of trying to make an inclusive environment where everybody can be involved in music. Mm-hmm. 
and some of that is like community. Um, sometimes your community demands that you yeah. bring home that trophy or your principal or your school system. In some areas, the, the grade or the rating you get at festival or assessment is your evaluation for the year. Mm. And it puts so much pressure on directors to perform, you know, you've got to do, and, and they're like, I would love to, what have, yeah. So I talk a lot to them about um, adapting parts, you know, wow. so that everybody in the band has a part that's suited to them and that they can all participate in some way. And I talk about like partial participation. So a kid can play one piece, but not all three pieces, you know, if that's, if that's what they can learn. And just, I think as more teachers do that and write notes to the adjudicators to say, hey, I've got some kids with special needs. Here are the adapted parts in case you hear something that's not on the score. Mm -hmm. You know, and just kind of really push back on that and say, you know what, that, that was cool. Norman Rockwell, 1950s, awesome. But these kids weren't in those pictures either. So we're going to put them in the picture and here's how we're doing it. And I think, you know, we got to push back on that paradigm so that it becomes the norm. Yeah. And, and take the pressure off performance classrooms that, you know, this is your, you know, this is who you are. This is, you know, no, it's not who you are. <laughs> it's not mm -hmm. who you are. And it's not, and it should in no way be your evaluation for the year or your, the community. It's almost like a football coach, right? If you lose a bunch of games, you get fired. Yeah. Well, that doesn't mean you're a bad football coach. You yeah. Know? <laughs> I think, yeah. Just, we just, we really kind of have to start thinking more inclusively. I mean, as a society, but of course we're, we're seeing that in many ways in 2020. This just a huge shift in the way we think about our society as a whole and our culture and the way we work together as a people and what we think about each other and the way we treat each other. Yeah. And not even just the performance piece that I feel like is an issue. I think a lot of people are hung up on notation mm -hmm. yes. and how it's been traditionally done and how we've traditionally taught music. And there are a lot of kids that can't learn that way. Right. I was at a conference, I don't know, sometime pre-COVID. And, you know, there's a large group of people, mostly secondary performance kind of ensemble people. And I said, so y'all, because I was in the South. I said, so y'all, is, is music aural or visual? And a whole bunch of them said visual. What? I was like, no. Oh my gosh. That just grinds my gears. Oh. Aural, you know, and, and yeah. And then I sat at a Jimmy John's or something. I don't know. I was eating a sandwich. And the people next to me were just bad-mouthing this teacher who was doing patterns and singing in band and and they didn't even start reading the notes until january <laughs> <laughs> like oh my people <laughs> so yes you're absolutely right yes we have to start thinking that all ways of learning music all ways of musicking all types of musicking you know banjo recorder ukulele you know drumming all it's all music and, and again, to get that idea, that picture out of our heads of that concert band on stage, you know, it, yeah. Yeah, because some kids learn by highlighting notes in different colors, and some kids learn through oral repetition, and some kids learn so differently. And that's so crazy to me that they said visual first. I, 
Because, uh, uh, excuse me, I think we use our ears to listen to music. Last time I checked. I don't think we use our eyeballs to listen, but, you know. Right. I mean. Maybe I'm just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And we could, but I really doubt that you're actually audiating the score that you're looking at. <laughs> but that was snarky. I'm sorry. Oh, no. It's good. We just, we let everything out here. This is where, this is where I air all my frustrations. This is I speak yeah. to people that are on the same playing level as me, and I'm like, yes, we agree on something. I'm not alone. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've had to, I've had kids that were visually impaired. I've had to blow up music for them before. I've had to adapt parts for, before for kids. It's, it's the way the world is. It's education. We need to make it for everyone. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And another thing that you said when you were talking about um, some of the things teachers can do is you talked about all kids needing to be active participants. Yes. And not just sitting there and observing what's going on. And I so wholeheartedly agree with that. Even if, like, you need to give them something to do. They can't just be sitting there. They're not learning. They're just watching. Right. Yeah, and that's not musicking. They're, right. They're not yeah. getting music. And I, and I almost equate that... It's, it's even worse than when teacher preparation programs just have kids just watch other people for like four years and then they student teach, which is a whole other thing for me because I think everybody should be actively teaching from the beginning because that's what makes good teachers. But, and, and I mean, I think there needs to be some observation in there, obviously, because they need to know how to teach before they do it. But I kind of equate that with the same thing. Like you need to be actively participating in teaching in order to be able to teach and you need to be actively participating in music as a student in order to learn. Yeah. Yeah, you do. And, and, it, and then it wouldn't make that very first time you have to get up and teach a rote song when you're a student teacher. So devastatingly frightening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've done it a lot. <laughs> oh yeah. And as a person that was so wholeheartedly a band kid growing up, I, band was my jam. I didn't do anything else. I didn't touch choir. I was terrified to sing. I remember taking AP music theory and having to sight read things. And I would literally be sweating in front of my whole class, like ready to cry. And yeah. then I had to go into BW where I had to to learn general music and strings and all these things. And like, especially general music and choral music methods scared me to death. <laughs> And then Butch Marshall had me do my first rote song teaching in front of the whole class, and I wanted to cry. <laughs> I love Butch Marshall. I love him dearly. He is, he yeah, is a great man. It's scary. Yeah, it's scary when you have to do that. And so, right, to get as much of that out of the way early helps you when you're in a classroom and they're actually your students. Yeah, and, I, and I'm so grateful for him to, like, make me uncomfortable, push me out of my comfort zone early. And for my... I shouldn't even call it observation hours. It's like our field work for the class. We observed a little bit, but the majority of the field work was us actively teaching. Obviously the teacher was there watching us and we'd right. film ourselves and then he would watch it afterward. And I remember I was doing kindergarten <laughs> and that was my first ed methods course I had to take because I had to do general, then choral, then instrumental. And so they saved my sweet spot for last. So I was in my uncomfortable zone for like two years. And, <laughs> and I remember I was so scared teaching a bunch of five-year-olds. Uh, uh, that can be terrifying. Yeah. And I got that uncomfortable feeling out of the way my sophomore year of college. So by the time I went to student teaching, I was like, oh yeah, I got this. Yeah. But 
I just remember teaching five-year-olds and they're just yelling at me like, I want to be a Power Ranger when I grow up. And I'm like, what do I do right now? We're supposed to be learning music. Who doesn't want to be a Power Ranger? (laughs) I said, and I was like, hopefully Dr. Marshall doesn't get mad at me for for encouraging this child right now. But it was really funny. It's like, do I acknowledge that? Do I keep teaching? I don't know. Yeah, it, 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 and when they're not your kids, that's the thing, too, mm-hmm. I think, about the artificial situation, when the most important thing is to know your kids and who they are, you yeah. know, it's like, of course you want to be a Power Ranger, but you would know which one if, you, if that was actually your student. Honestly, though, I would prefer teaching a group of strange kids than to teach a group of adults, because I feel like that's even more uncomfortable. (laughs) It can be, yes. When you're in an interview and all of the administrators from a school are like, okay, well, pretend like you're teaching us, like we're a second grade class, and then they pretend to answer, ask questions like uh, second graders, and I'm sitting there like, this is so weird. (laughs) That is But yeah, anyway, I'm getting on a tangent. So we were talking about being active participants and everything. And uh, I think a lot of what you have to say and a lot of your findings as a teacher and as a teacher educator, I think are really great. And I feel like everybody should go check them out. So you've co-authored some resources that are available for people to read or look at or whatever. So can you tell us where we would find those things if we were interested in like learning more about some of the things you've researched and studied? Most of the books that I've co-authored, you can find on like Amazon and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I've got some chapters in other books that have been published with like GIA and Rutledge. So that, but the, the ones that, that I think that you were talking about with like really the practical resources and everything, mm-hmm. those are, um, yeah, through Amazon, they're published by Oxford University Press. And most of it is like teaching music to students with special needs. There's the teaching music to students with autism and then the winding it back where I talk a lot about how to take objectives and wind them back to find a student so that you can, you know, be right where they are and their skill level or wind it forward to find the Cassidy's, you know, find, find what they need. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. And, and then a- anybody is welcome to be my Facebook friend or to email me and I'm happy to help anybody anytime. That's great. Yeah. I will include links to Alice's books. If people are interested that way. I, I'm finding it for them. <laughs> Good, <laughs> thank <click>. you. <laughs> yeah. And so you, you mentioned how you've written a book specializing in autism Mm -hmm. and you are also an intervention specialist so can you talk a little bit about your research specifically in the autism realm of things with music education yes um i (laughs) my first book was label free right and then my second book was a label so that seems a little cognitively dissonant my co-author ryan has two sons who are on the autism spectrum And I have a daughter who was diagnosed as being somewhere on the spectrum with pervasive developmental disorders. So we felt that we had a lot of information, not just as researchers, but also as parents in that area. So we we wrote the autism book, I think it was published in 2013, and then the new one now for 2020. And yeah, a lot of it is research-based, but all of the kind of like the vignettes and the stories and everything are absolutely real and come from you know our lives as parents and as teachers yeah that's great you also mentioned that you're the president 
elect for the Virginia Music Educators Association. So I don't know how much you've thought about what you're going to do when you become president, but did you have any ideas about how you were going to keep moving music education in Virginia forward? Yes, by increasing the representation of Black, Indigenous, people of color, and women in the organization. That's one of my primary goals, is to make the leadership in our organization look like the membership in our organization. That's really important to me. Yeah. Um, I want to create a more inclusive, more diverse leadership structure and to make sure that when I'm done, there's enough of that in the process that it'll continue beyond my presidency. That's great. I feel like a lot of, I can't speak for Virginia, but just being in New York State growing up and now teaching here, I feel like a lot of the state representation at that level has been very white male washed for a very long time. So I think that's really great that you're going to do that. And I'm not sure what your state manual looks like, but I know like the NISMA manual for New York State is not the most diverse thing in the world. (laughs) Yes, we're working on that as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I've, I've looked a, a lot at the NISPA manual, especially the band section, and I was very uh, scared <laughs> about the representation there. I went on the New York State website and I saw who was on the committee for that, and I was like, oh, that's why. <laughs> well, in the process of adding literature to the state lists, mm-hmm. sometimes it's, it's a very long process. It requires a lot of machinations and politics and yeah so being able to streamline that and say here's a great piece I think we should add it to the list yeah I think I think a lot of the manuals especially in the the instrumental sort of realm of things have been reusing the same composers over and over and over again and I feel like that's one of the issues that needs to be resolved and I feel like people are starting to move towards trying to get as many different people as possible which is great Yep. I, we're, we're waking up. I think 2020 has been a really important year. Yeah, I agree. Well, I want to thank you so much for talking with us today and talking about your experiences and your research and that sort of thing. And I think we've enlightened a few people to some of the issues that are still occurring in music education. And I encourage everybody to please check out Alice's books because they're great. Thank you.